Welcome to Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelic psychotherapy and the uneasy fit between a medicalized view of human suffering and the mysterious, mystical world of psychedelic drugs. I'm your co-host, Nathan Gates. And I'm your co-host, Brian Pilecki. We're two therapists and longtime psychedelic advocates who love to discuss all aspects of this fast evolving field. Thanks for keeping it current with us. And thanks for keeping it weird as we dive into today's episode. Dr. King is a psychiatrist at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. He's particularly interested in optimization of therapy paradigms within psychedelic research, as well as the use of psychedelic-assisted therapies in disorders at the mind-body interface. He's the principal investigator in a pilot study exploring the feasibility of psilocybin-assisted therapy for irritable bowel syndrome, and is the study psychiatrist for a neuroimaging study partnering with MAPS examining the effects of MDMA-assisted therapy for fibromyalgia. He's also co-developing the Harvard Interdisciplinary Program in Psychedelics with friends and colleagues at BWH and BIDMC, a program that will provide education and training in psychedelic-assisted therapies for clinicians across the various hospitals in the Harvard Medical School community. But most importantly, he is a very fun friend of mine on Twitter, where he and I enjoy an excellent banter, banter and quite enjoy each other's accounts, so that's probably the most important aspect. At any rate, here's our interview with Dr. Franklin King. Welcome back to Altered States of Context. Today we are here with Dr. Franklin King. Um, Franklin, do you go? Is it Franklin or Frank? Do you tend to go by? Franklin, always Franklin. Franklin, always Franklin. Okay. Um, so Franklin, um, to get started, why don't you just tell us just a little bit about about yourself? Um, you know where you're working and what your interest is in psychedelics, and, and just kind of give us a little orientation to jump off here. Sure. Yeah. So I'm. Uh fairly uh, junior faculty at uh, Mass General Hospital in Boston, uh, Harvard Medical School, graduated from psychiatry residency in 2017. You know, this psychedelics is an area I've been interested in for a very long time, predating uh, psychiatry. And currently, I have a number of roles that I fill um, in both research and clinical practice at Mass General. So the small outpatient practice at the Center for Anxiety and Traumatic Stress Disorders program. I spend most of my clinical time in our emergency room working in the acute psychiatry service, which is our, our psych ER, where we have usually between 25 to 45 patients uh, awaiting placement uh, per day. And then I'm also involved in research with psychedelics and uh, as well as being the director of training and education for our center for neuroscience of psychedelics which is a center that's been officially open for two years been in the works for a couple of years before that and so i'm involved in a number of clinical studies that are in 
very, very, very early stages of infancy. And really kind of my, my interest though, I would say is more kind of broadly in terms of kind of understanding uh, how psychedelics can be helpful both clinically, um, how they can be helpful um, you know, for, for alleviating uh, symptoms of psychiatric disorders for which we really don't have treatments. And then also, uh, you know, as we discussed uh, before we just hit the record button, kind of also what psychedelics can kind of teach healthcare workers and teach psychiatrists and mental health clinicians um, about concepts of wellness and illness and, and what it is to be sick and, and, you know, maybe changing some of the paradigms that we think and that we use in our practice. So a lot of other stuff, but I think that's sort of the broad strokes and I'll, I'll pause there. Nice. So let's, for, for the sake of context, um, you know, it sounds like you spend a lot of your time, uh, like you said, in the sort of acute psychiatry um, wing, you know, at the hospital you're at. So like working with, pe with people who are just in, um, you know, emergency psychiatric, um, you know, having an emergency psychiatric problem, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's obviously, I think, uh, really, really intense work. Um, and I wonder if you can tell me uh, a little bit about that and how, you know, that specifically maybe informs this, you know, like how you can, um, what you, the last thing you said, um, what psychedelics can teach healthcare workers and just sort of like what you see on the unit, just in terms more, less about the people you're working with and more about how they're worked with amongst the, the, you know, the staff and the, and the context and just the, um, you know, just the, the, the unit of the hospital itself and how that may or may not need, meet the needs of the people in crisis right then. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, it's definitely a pretty intense place. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it's probably about as intense a place as you could work as a psychiatrist. Um, you know, I think that the first thing that just kind of comes to mind broadly is thinking about the idea of set and setting. You know, we're sort of talking about, you know, how can psychedelics help change the sort of healthcare environment? And how can psychedelics maybe shift the approach with which clinicians, you know, walk into a room and see a patient and conceive of, of you know, what's going on with them and what they need. And, you know, I've, I've been in a lot of different psychiatric emergency rooms. I think, you know, ours is, is one of the best, um, but still has a, a huge amount of limitations. And, you know, first and foremost is just the, the sterility of the environment. And this is not for lack of trying with, um, with the leadership of my service. We actually opened an, a whole new wing, um, I think about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. So it's brand new, um, you know, it, it's very clean, it's, it's bright. There actually are some, some wall decorations, which is in contrast to a lot of emergency rooms. So there's murals on some of the walls and common pictures of, sort of like trees and waterfalls and mountains and things like that. But, you know, it, it's funny when you think about sort of setting up an ideal psychedelic treatment center you really want things to be as unhospital-esque as possible. And this is based on some evidence that, you know, back in the 60s when there were certain clinical studies, people were having adverse reactions um, to fluorescent lights and drop ceilings and things like that. And I, it, it sort of strikes me more and more um, as the years go by, why don't we 
bring this into our notion of general clinics? Like why, why is that idea limited to psychedelics only in terms of, you know, when you're dealing with people that are so depressed or anxious or experiencing trauma, like does anybody really derive any benefit from a sort of sterile looking healthcare environment? So, you know, I, I think that's just sort of one, one thing that I think about like the built environment of a hospital itself could actually stand to be much more humanized. And I do think that that would probably benefit patients coming through. As far as I know, just as an aside, there's, only, there's one tiny study is from the Scandinavian hospital unit where they use a seclusion room and one seclusion room was very sterile and the other was sort of very like sort of calmly decorated with more soothing colors. And they actually found that people did better um, in the latter than the former. But yeah, um, in terms of, of the work itself, I think, you know, it, it's quite difficult that really the, the most difficult part of the job is just the massive number of patients coming through that are in crisis and the dearth of resources that we have. And Boston is like an astoundingly privileged place. We have so many psychiatric units. We have so many hospitals. We have, you know, five, six Harvard teaching hospitals. And then you know, like 10 other teaching hospitals of other different universities. And even so, it just feels like, you know, we have people stuck for days waiting for placement. Okay. And unfortunately, you know that often that, you know, the inpatient treatment is going to, you know, buy the person five, seven days. And if they're lucky, they're going to get back and get set up with, you know, a really good therapist and a good psychiatrist and people that really can kind of work with them. But so often that really doesn't happen. So you know, you, there's sort of a, an emotional difficulty of knowing that, mm -hmm. that what, you know, what's really going to happen realistically for most of the people coming in is really not what they need. Um, yeah, I, I did a, I, Franklin, I did a, a short little rotation on an emergency room as a, you know, psychology intern. And mm -hmm. really the whole goal of the staff there were to just just to get to, to discharge the patients as quickly as possible and so the the environment was sort of intentionally not welcoming and not too comfortable and it just you know it feels like that's that's so much part of our current healthcare system is we're just kind of passing patients around and mm -hmm. it's like if it's not my specialty if it's not exactly what i know then then sorry you're gonna have to figure something else out and and so many patients don't you know they get they fall through the cracks and they don't get their needs met in that kind of mentality of the way the whole thing is structured. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's absolutely true. And, and I think, you know, what the vast majority of people need over the long term, obviously, is sort of longer term care. And that's true for psychiatry as it is for medicine. And really what is needed are, you know, public health interventions and things that make people more healthy and living in a more healthy way and resources to help them live lives of wellness rather than illness, which are things that we're really not equipped to do as, as you know, physicians. You don't learn about that in medical school. You learn to sort of address acute crises and acute diseases and you diagnose them and you treat them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's work that I do enjoy doing. I mean, I, I feel like you can be there for somebody in a moment of crisis uh, in the emergency room. Um, and it also is, it's a dose of reality. I think it's very easy to get 
kind of rosy eyed or get overly intellectual and theoretical about, you know, what does the world need? We need this and that and that. But, you know, whatever your opinions are about the mental health world, there are people in crisis there. I mean, there are 40, 50 people there right now waiting for something that they need um, in any emergency room around here. And I think it, it's important to also just sort of see, um, you know, see the reality of the situation and, and, and not get too theoretical, which I do see a lot in, in psychedelic spaces today. Hmm. Yeah, it's a, um, it's an impossible job, really. Um, I think that's um, my, my view of it. It's just, um, like you alluded to, um, you know, the, the, the social causes and the sheer volume of need, you know, just you create a situation in which um, the uh, demand, for lack of a better word, um, is just so tremendous um, that um, there's just no chance, you know, meeting it in the way we have things currently structured. Um, so it's sort of a, it's definitely a triage situation um, mm -hmm. all the time. I imagine that's your experience is just to sort of like triage, triage, triage in that situation. Yeah, well, that's the, I mean, that's the primary role really of emergency, in any sort of emergency yeah. work is, you know, did, can, can you discharge this person or, or can they, or do they need to be admitted or do they need something mm -hmm. in between? Like that's it. Yeah, and, and you know, my work as a, um, as a therapist, um, it's, you know, and I, understanding at least a little bit, like I, I don't, you know, work on those units, but I know people and I'm pretty much familiar enough with, with what, um, you know, what's that, what that's like. I mean, I regularly, you know, have people then who end up, you know, kind of on that bubble. And um, I have a really, really, really high threshold. Like I will very much, you know, try to make it so it's not necessary that a person I'm working with goes to the hospital. And, you know, and, and you know, a lot of time, you know, like, um, kind of feel like it, it's a scary thing sometimes because you're like well you know if I really want to push you to go to the hospital I think that's for my anxiety not what's best for you you know I think that that's to alleviate my fear that I think you're you know um of what will happen but in the end I don't think it's going to help you I don't think two weeks from now you're going to be better off than you are right now if i do this and then there's a couple you know there's not, it's not been very many but there's been a couple times where it's like mm, yeah no this um it's just that it's a it's a very hard call knowing that you know it is going to be this, this sort of triage situation they're going to be kind of run through this thing some are going to be actively have a very bad time you know um and some are mm -hmm. going to some are going to get a bit more stable um but it's uh it, it's just there's just the, the the demand is is um it's tremendous and disallows for, um, you know, people getting the, the care and the attention. And then regardless, they're going to end up in the same situation they were in that produced the problem. So um, it's, it's kind of a, it's a, it's really, but I, I want to talk about this a little bit because I kind of wanted to establish the context that we're talking mm -hmm. about. You know, when we talk about psychedelic medicine. I think like you mentioned earlier, sometimes we kind of forget about, um, you know, the reality of what the mental health system looks like right now. Yeah, I, I actually, I would come back just to the, the thing you said, um, thinking about when, when people get sent into the emergency room by their clinician, you know, who is that really for? Is that because the, the clinician genuinely thinks that this is what they need, which obviously is sometimes the case, or, or is that being done 
you know, to assuage the clinician's anxiety or because of liability concerns where they think, you know, this person really doesn't necessarily, I don't think they truly need to go, but, you know, because of liability issues or sort of other concerns, I'm going to send them anyway. And so we, we see that a lot. And I think that also is, is we, we could draw a connection to sort of thinking about psychedelic work in that regard, mm. which is that I think obviously one of the, the real fundamentals of working with psychedelics is being non-reactive, right? It's sort of, you don't tell people to sort of take a psychedelic and sort of expect one specific thing. And the clinicians, you know, the, the most verboten thing that a clinician can do with someone who's on a psychedelic journey is to become all interventionists and impose their anxiety or sort of try to, to steer the journey one way or the other. Right. And so I think that that kind of mindset is so anathema to the way that the vast majority of mental health practice in this country is at in 2023, mm -hmm. where, you know, it, it, and and I don't want to minimize the the suffering. I I, I want to really try to strike this nuance here. Where certainly there are situations where people are in crisis and they do need an intervention. But you know the way we, in general, it's sort of the idea of like sort of like any experience of anxiety, any experience of depression, any experience of negative affect, instantly leads to you know, we need to sort of jump in, we need to prescribe a medication, we need to cover up this emotion, we need to react against this. And I think that mindset itself really is not helpful um, in a huge number of cases, right? And so we see that also in terms of, you know, what might happen if we weren't quite so reactive all the time as a society. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think that's kind of, that, that gets more into sort of broader concepts of, of how I think you know, training people in psychedelic assisted therapy might actually be helpful outside of even just the therapy context, just learning to be less reactive, learning to have a little bit more acceptance. Nate, I know you're really into ACT. And I think that kind of, you know, there's a, a lot of kind of parallels with, with that treatment as well. Yeah, Brian and I are both ACT therapists. That's the particular bent generally the, um, you know, the podcast takes. And, you know, what you bring up is something I've, I've, I've said and thought a lot, which is not only that, you know, you know, we think about psychedelics for um, treatment directly of people that we're working with, right, as a medicine. Um, but I strongly believe that I'm a better therapist because of my own psychedelic experience. Strongly mm -hmm. believe that. And it's exactly what you're pointing at is, is, is this sort of like, tolerance for extremely intense um you know mental experience you know and and a you know a a, a willingness to not i don't want to say not intervene but not um like uh aggressively intervene or intrusively intervene to to, to sort of allow space for things rather than i need to do something mm -hmm. um and I, and I think that I, I draw a very direct parallel for in, in my own practice. And so I think that psychedelics are, you know, like forget treatment of people. That's great. But that's a whole other thing. I, I think it can really help train people who are going to work with people in extreme uh, states of mind, extreme um, having extreme psychiatric emergency. Well, I think, I mean, it, it sounds like you might be saying that it it has helped you be with someone who is undergoing such an experience to simply be present with that person 
right? And when we're sort of getting into an interventionist mindset, we're not being present with that person. We're sort of drawing a barrier between ourselves and the person who's undergoing that experience. We want to sort of do something to them. We want to sort of control it, which essentially when it, when you really sort of strip it down into the most simplistic way of understanding, it's that we're not just simply sitting with that, that person mm -hmm. and just because we can't tolerate it. So I think that's a really, really crucial thing um, to think about. Yeah, yeah, it makes and I, I have experienced again and again it making a really, really big difference. Um, I think it's one of the things that um, to the extent that I mean, I hope I'm a good therapist to the extent that I think I am. A lot of it has to do with the fact that I'll I'll, you know, not just sit back and listen passively, but like really actively um, be with that and not um, not allow my fear or uncertainty or anxiety about what's happening, you know, sort of prompt me to like, mm. I need to, you know, cover my ass here. Or I need to do something to make sure that this person, like, you know, it's like, well, okay, like this person needs to walk through this themselves. Um, they have to walk through this themselves. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm going to be here um, metaphorically holding their hand, but like, um, I can't do it. I can't make them do it. I can't, you know, like I'm not in control here. Right. That word keeps coming up here in this conversation control. I think that's appropriate. And I think that's also so important to, and in that way, I think this sort of the, the philosophy, if you could call it a philosophy that undergirds the sort of contemporary model of psychedelic assisted therapy really is patient centered. I mean, it's, it's truly patient centered because it's autonomy focused. It's basically saying, Number one, nobody else is going to be able to do this journey but you. And at the same time, it's also sort of this core belief that each person, you know, in the right circumstances and with the right support, you know, the person's not doing this sort of all by themselves, but that somewhere within each person, there is the capacity to heal oneself. And I think that that is so alien to our entire medical system. Um, and I think, I think that really kind of, that, that causes a lot of hurt for a lot of patients and not just in psychiatry, in medicine too. And, it, and it's not to say that there's not a role obviously for medicine and for physicians and treaters and clinicians, but just this idea that, that people can heal themselves, mm. right? They're not gonna necessarily do it on their own and they can get help from others but that we do have that capacity. And I think that really is just a, a, a very supportive and I, I just, that I'm very drawn to that philosophy. I and mean, that's one of the things that really sort of that yeah. draws me to this work um, significantly. Yeah, that's really well said. Um, the thing that's gonna make a person, the thing is that basically navigate, it's a tough, it's a tough world and the people we work with are often facing incredible, just incredible, incredible life challenges. Mm -hmm. um, and the only way they're going to be able to navigate that successfully isn't because of something, you know, we do, right. It's because they are able to find and cultivate the agency to take the necessary steps in their life. Like that sense of agency is essential. It's, a, it's, it's not without it you know with you know with more of a passivity or or the mm -hmm. mindset of you know what you might say like a like a patient type mindset 
um, like they're not going to be able to take the agency necessary to navigate the very real and tremendous challenges in their life. Um, so, and I think so much of treatment undermines their sense of agency and that's so counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the whole, the way we talk about diagnoses, you know, I, I work closely with the residents and one of the things I, I always try to tell them is like, you know, when you give somebody a diagnosis, you really have to, to think hard about what it feels like to be given a diagnosis, to be told that, you know, because we often sort of say you have this as if you sort of like you are this thing, like, you know, you, oh, you have major depressive disorder. You know, that means that that that, that it, <laughs> it's not to say that, that MDD doesn't doesn't exist or, you know, I mean, there are obviously a lot of issues, sort of the validity of our, our sort of whole classification system of mental disorders. But there's a determinism in the way that I think psychiatry tends to be practiced today that is incredibly damaging where people basically get told, you know, you have this thing and this is going to be with you for the rest of your life and you're, you're going to be dependent on, you know, your therapist or your doctor or whatever forever. And, you know, again, I, I think there's a nuance to this and I certainly don't want to sort of encourage the idea that, you know, there might not be some people that need to be on medications, you know, for long periods mm -hmm. of time for certain disorders, but just deep within the, the way we approach this, when we walk in and we say, you know, you have this thing, yeah. it's, it's, it can be a very harmful concept that people can absorb very deeply and then, and then over identify with for the rest of their life. And, and it really can induce a, a state of passivity and sort of take away agency from them. I think that's one of the, the deepest things that we're going to have to struggle with as a field for, for a really long time. It could, could talk a little bit about like the, the larger cultural values. I mean, Nate hates when I get political here, but I'll do it anyway. Uh, that we, you know, and part of this, I'm just kidding, Nate, uh, part of this is, uh, you know, uh, consumers culture is that we're, we're inherently missing something or broken, or we need something else. You know, we need some product. We need to improve ourselves. We're so conditioned in that mentality. And I think for many folks, psychedelic experiences are such a, a, a breath of relief. Like people just like, Oh, okay. I'm, I'm okay. How I am. And, uh, you know, there's this sort of source of connectiveness that's more actually um, vital and sustaining that 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 we can experience with the help of things like psychedelics it is is so much more. It, it's such a different kind of perspective. And I think a lot of the integration work is people then go back to the old their old habits, their old lives. And, and, and it's very hard to sustain that kind of interconnected, I am whole mentality in our everyday American life. Well, I, I think, yeah. And, and I think that's true. That's true, not just with psychedelics. I mean, I think that's true with, you know, therapy in general. I mean, I think people can, people can have a, you know, huge breakthrough in therapy, or they can sort of be working on something in therapy. But, you know, no matter what happens in therapy, you still come right back out into your, your normal life. And you're surrounded by all the systems that, you know, you yourself have constructed around you, you know, mostly unconsciously throughout your life. And you're surrounded 
by a culture that is not in your best interest. You know, the, the culture we inhabit is not one that is telling us all the things that we need to do to be well. It's telling us, you know, you are sick, you are missing this, buy this product so you feel better. And, you know, that's true in medicine, but it's true on a broader cultural level as well. And so that it's kind of like an uphill climb in any therapy, in any treatment where you kind of, you know, you can be very safe in this, this one little contained environment, but then you're hurled back into this, you know, pretty hostile world. I, I'd like to take that, you know, I think the, the, the commodities of our system issue is also relevant to psychedelics in this, you know, this conversation that I know is a pretty hot topic of, you know, is it worth pursuing psychedelics that don't actually produce um, the psychedelic experience? Mm. And, you know, I, 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 I don't know if I have an opinion on that in any objective way, or if it's even possible to have a sort of objective opinion about that. But, but my concerns, and that you've probably seen me posting this on, on Twitter, is that, you know, th this, that question is not answered in a vacuum, right? If you ask the question, is that a research cause worth pursuing? There is a huge amount of vested interest in commodifying psychedelics. And it's way easier to commodify psychedelics if they don't have this inconvenient need for psychotherapists and this, you know, incredibly inconvenient and unfortunate psychedelic uh, effect. So, you know, certainly I think in some hypothetical situation, there probably will be a, a lot of really useful neuroscience, not hypothetical. I think there will be, that will be discovered um, by a lot of the work of folks that are researching this, but it doesn't change the fact that the system right now is constructed in a way that is in direct opposition to everything that is important in psychedelic assisted therapy. And people really should not forget the fact that somewhere in there, even, you know, I don't think the scientists are, are necessarily thinking this way, but the system is thinking in a certain way. And the system would love mm -hmm. to see psychedelics turned into something that does nothing to your mental state, but which you have to take every single day. So I just, I, I think people have to think, you know, like does something fit the existing system or not? And if it does fit the existing system, we should be extremely wary of sort of the actors that are going to be involved in this. And I think people, people forget that often. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, that's a great point. You know, if it, if it fits the existing system, we should be very wary of it. Right. Because, um, you know, cause as we've been talking about so far today, it's, it's, um, it's really at times, you know, very inhumane and undermining. Um, you know, I think there's a flip side too here. I kind of wanted to to consider. So, you know, and, and, and Brian, you said something like direct unmediated contact with the source of connectedness, right? Which is very much like that's psychedelic. That's not happening with these sort of unpsychedelic psychedelics, whatever. It's a, it's a bizarre concept to me, but. <laughs> um, and um, you know, on the flip side of that, and this is getting around this commodification issue too, because, and then we can explore this a little bit because I think it's, it is very nuanced um, because in the non-nuanced view, I think it's like um, basically saying, you know, that if you're not just completely anti-capitalist, which I mean, fine, I don't mind that, <laughs> but if you're not completely against, like we had like blow the whole thing up, 
um, you know, it's, it's impossible to work in, with anything like this. You just have to throw out everything. And if you're not doing that, then basically you're completely complicit with it. And there can be no half measures. There can be no, um, but I think that ignores the fact, right, that people live in the world now and the mm. world, people live in the world as it is now. And they're going to for a while. Like, it's not like like this, whatever this big, glorious utopian change we'd like to see isn't happening next week or next mm -hmm. year. And people have to navigate this. And the way people are going to navigate that is with, you know, agency, right? And 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 I think that the, the idea that we can't do anything without dismantling the whole system is also really paternalistic and saying, like, these people aren't capable of navigating the challenges in their life, um, which... Again, some of these challenges are are tremendous, and I'm not saying that I, I hold it against people it, that they get swallowed up by the realities of life right now. Like I, I'm not saying that. I don't blame people for their own struggles, right? But it is also true that it's the world we live in, and if they're going to navigate it, learning how to, you know, act in the world as it is is going to be something they're going to have to do. And people are off are capable of that, you know. And so there's like an in between here between, you know, we can't be paternalistic in one way, but we also shouldn't be paternalistic in the other. You know, I, I think, yeah, I, someone said something to me um, about a year ago and, you know, we were, we were talking about, about this as a conversation with a few people and somebody pointed out this notion that simply being outraged itself can be a very sort of privileged position to have. And, and I think that that's really interesting to, to think about that, you know, we so often see people, and especially on Twitter, who sort of, you know, have incredibly strong opinions about, you know, the way the system needs to change. And that in and of itself can be a, a way of being very disconnected from the actual work that needs to be done. And, you know, as you pointed out, I mean, the, first of all, the system is the system. I mean, we all live in it and we all have to live in it. And yeah, I, I think it is important to not make some kind of psychedelic utopia crusade happen at the expense of, uh, you know, sacrificing, you know, tons of people who really could be helped, you know, in the moment. So, you know, even within sort of the, the sphere of the people that kind of don't want to see psychedelics medicalized, you know, I, I have some feelings about, you know, like the compass protocol obviously has really sort of sterilized the psychedelic experience as much as it possibly can. And a lot of other companies are sort of pursuing that. And, you know, once this gets approved, you know, there's going to be offices that are not, you know, the most beautiful places for people to go get psychedelic treatments. And, you know, is that okay? Is it worth dying on the hill of sort of saying, no, like every single person needs to go to the most beautiful nature center and sort of experience, you know, the most incredible psychedelic session that they possibly could. And not everybody's going to be able to do that. And, you know, moreover, I think this, this may just be sort of a step in, in that direction, but this, you can't get too outraged and you can't get too uncompromising. I mean, there are, there are lives at stake and, you know, the system right now is what it is. I think you see that a lot in sort of the anti-psychiatry crowd as well, with sort of those people that are very against like all mental health treatment, which I don't want to get too much into that conversation, but it's, 
there's a certain judgment that sort of goes into that. I understand where some of those arguments might come from on a theoretical basis, but that doesn't change the fact that that people are suffering. And if people are suffering and they find things that, that are helpful for them, I think that's that's completely acceptable and we have to support that. It's why it does get to be that the, there's just like uh, over, um, almost overusing this word, but there's so much nuance required because you know even within some of those arguments you're talking about are very solid strong arguments you know you'll find um you know in in the anti-psychiatry um, movement you will find good strong arguments that should be uh, paid attention to but there is you know i think yeah as you're discussing there's so many people want to be so all or nothing um okay. and um that's just not going to get it done. It's just not going to get it done on, 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 on whatever position you're holding it. it it's um, the real world is far too messy for um, a strong ideological um, message to be um, universally true. It's just not going to be. Yeah. And, and I think when you get, when you get dogmatic, when someone gets dogmatic, mm -hmm. they're really, they're, they're, Another way of looking at it, they're just they're really getting hung up on their own ego problems. It's a, it's another way of 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 a sort of having an ego trap and and disengaging and not being present with the reality of the world that is. And I think that's that's something that's really important to keep in mind. And e even outside of psychedelics, just in terms of right, I mean, you work with patients. I mean, you you can approach a patient with a, with a ton of different theories. And there's people that can do that in a nimble fashion. They can be agile with the way they sort of think about things. But anyone who sort of holds, you know, every single patient to a certain theory, you know, whether it's attachment or act or psychoanalytical, I mean, it gets completely ridiculous and ineffective if you're just sort of like forcing every person rigidly into a theory, because people aren't theories. They're not abstractions. They're real. They live in the material reality that we're in we're all in together. I'm curious, Franklin, as a, someone who's, um, you know, been trained as a psychiatrist and, and working in a medical, you know, academic medical center, uh, ha have you encountered um, backlash or opposition to psychedelic assisted therapy? I, I, someone asked me that yesterday, like, why don't we see more of formal opposition? And it's like, yeah, we don't really see people you know, there's criticisms, which I think are fair, but I, I, it feels like me, that's, that's strange to me. Like where, where are the folks who are really standing up? And I'm, I'm always curious, like, what's been your experience around that? You know, really, I, I haven't seen a lot of it, um, at least in that way. I think at MGH, we've been really lucky because the person who chaired our department of psychiatry for uh, decades, uh, Jerry Rosenbaum, got really interested in this work seven years or so ago. And you know, he's the director of our center. And so he, he stepped down from running the department of psychiatry three, four years ago, but continued to run the center. So having someone of his stature kind of give his imprimatur to studying this, I think, by itself was hugely helpful. But, you know, there's also, I, I think, I don't know, academia can be really rigid and 
really kind of stigmatize a lot of stuff that, that can be deemed alternative treatments. Um, but academia can also be very interested in things that are deemed cutting edge. And so I think that's, that's another reason why, um, at least I haven't seen really anything at MGH. I think people are just really curious and interested in this. I think probably some of it is also, you know, if I'm honest, psychedelics are kind of sexy and exotic. You know, they're sort of titillating and, and, and you know, everybody wants to sort of learn about them now. So I think, I think there's probably a piece of that, you know, where people are, are more willing to think about psychedelics for mental health than they might be, than they might have been, you know, about meditation when that was sort of coming into the, the sphere 15 years ago. Um, but I, it's not like that everywhere. I mean, I, I, I'm used to people just being sort of curious and open in Mass General about it, but... Um, you know, I, I've talked with psychiatry residents at hospitals that are, you know, smaller places in Massachusetts where they're not getting the same sort of warm reception and, mm. you know, a lot of sort of like the usual dumb jokes about, you know, like, oh, are you high while you're giving this presentation, like, and, and things like that. But, yeah, I, I think that, and finally, I think the most important thing that is that I think about a lot about this question. Why is there less, why is there not all that much criticism about psychedelics? It's probably the most important thing, um, if I'm right, which I, I think I am about this, is that this the fact that psychedelics are so, are the subject of so much intense interest, really more than anything speaks to the degree of desperation for something in our yeah. society. Yeah. I think that is just yeah. like, I mean, we are in we are in the middle of so many crises, generational crises, the political crises, the the mental health crises. You know, the suicide rates are increasing. The overdose deaths last year were like two thirds increase over the the two years before that. I mean, we are in the midst of so much crisis, and I, I think the the degree of intense yearning for something is really the the the, uh, the first and the last reason why people are willing to consider psychedelics because they seem to offer something that is completely outside the system and people know um, that this may be something that can help them. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. It, it, it is, you know, like there's a, um, a deep need and hunger for, you know, something else. And so there's a degree of openness that you wouldn't see if if that wasn't there i think yeah, you know, just I wanted, one oh, one ahead, other thing nate just yeah sorry just just a, a side corollary of that that i think people really should be mindful of is when you have the degree of sort of hunger for something that i think people do the intensity with which people want to get these treatments i mean i, I get messages all the time mm -hmm. through email of people that want to you know yep. get into studies yeah. um that that does set up a, a huge risk. I think there there are yeah. people that are going to sort of you know they they have no idea what psychedelics are about. Yeah, they desperately need them, and they desperately have this sort of like misguided idea of how they work and how they can help them. And I think there are going to be people who get into trouble. We we kind of as a profession do need to sort of be aware of just how intense people. Yeah feel like they need something in order to sort of, you know, sort of curb their enthusiasm a little bit and provide more 
kind of tempered education on on what these things are going to be like. Yeah, to totally agree with that. I get I could probably if I decided, which I have never done and won't ever do, but if I decided I wanted to be an underground therapist, man, I could be full time next week. I get yeah. you know, just being pretty open and uh, open with my you know interest and in, you know having this podcast and talking about it. I do get people reach out pretty regularly, being like, so um is this uh where could i i'm like no no sorry <laughs> um I, yeah i have a license and uh am above board but um there is a ton of 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 people looking um and there is that degree of desperation which you know um in an individual person who's um desperate for something better that is something to be um you know cautious and respectful around that's that that's a a, a vulnerable position for a person to be in for sure mm -hmm. Yeah, um, very, very vulnerable. I wanted to ask about, you said you haven't encountered um, just direct opposition. So I kind of wanted to think a little bit about more subtle, um, maybe forms of opposition. Um, I know that in Illinois, you know, we're, we're working on a law. Um, actually, it's proposed, it's being debated, it's um, on the floor. Yeah, I've seen um, that. It's great work. And it's... Um, you know, it does sort of both a, it, it deschedules psilocybin. So it removes it from the list of controlled substances in Illinois. So it would need it. So it'll be regulated more like alcohol and tobacco is not under the controlled substances act. And also setting up this program, you know, I guess we'll just call it like an Oregon style program or a Colorado style program. Um, and one of the things I've been, you know, keeping a, you know, an eye on, and I'm curious about, and you kind of see like the um, the big professional orgs, like how how are they going to respond? Because like, okay, so they're not outright against psychedelic therapy, but at the same time, I think there's still a real desire to, well, yeah, as long as we're sort of in control of it, it's cool. But you know, so kind of want like there's some territorialism, I think, with the the you know, like who who's Who's in charge? Who has um, priority over um, administering these? Who, who, yeah, basically, who's who's in control? And, and it seems to me that some of the, you know, um, yeah, the big mental health interests might be open to psychedelics as long as they're the ones dispensing them. I wonder about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, I think there's there's two ways of answering. Sort of talking about the, the you know the political and legal aspects of psychedelics, and one is as a sort of in the capacity of being a mental health professional, and the other is as a citizen. Although it's hard to kind of keep those fully separate. Um, you know, at I feel like I have to say as a professional, I I think you know, or I don't think I know. There are certainly risks for psychedelics, and there are certainly mm -hmm. people that really shouldn't be taking psychedelics. That being said. I, the the legal schedule of psychedelics is completely insane, and you know the fact that they are Schedule One makes absolutely no sense. We do not need any further research to know that they don't meet the criteria for Schedule One, and it is ridiculous to suggest that that there is any science behind that whatsoever. Now, in terms of you know who should be gatekeeping these things. Um, I, I think it's tough because people can get themselves into trouble with psychedelics. I personally don't think that, you know, the, the, the risks that do exist for psychedelics, I, I don't think that that even so 
means that they ought to be controlled by the medical profession. Um, you know, but but that's that's more based on my own personal opinion, and my own personal opinion tends to be one that I think, you know, more risk up to a point uh, is acceptable um, in the interest of having people having more freedom. Mm-hmm. So you know, again, that, that's more of a personal and, and a political opinion. But in terms of even from from a medical standpoint, I, I certainly I definitely don't think that people trained as physicians are the best suited to to be administering or controlling psychedelics. That could change. Um, you know, we're actually having a, a, a training in October. We're super excited about this. Uh, Maps is going to do a five day uh, training in. Uh, for all of the Harvard psychiatry residents who want to go in October. And then we're sort of putting together some, some additional sessions on psilocybin and other psychedelics for them. But, um, you know, physicians are not trained to, to, you know, get down in the trenches and be present with patients. Physicians are trained to be sort of dispassionate scientists and, and, and to be distant from patients. And, you know, we can debate whether that's how medicine should or should not be practiced, but, but that is how it is. And I think the people that are probably most professionally suited for being psychedelic assisted therapists are, are people, you know, who are, who are really good therapists in certain schools of therapy. Um, and, you know, another group that often doesn't get talked about, which are, you know, hospital chaplains and medical chaplains who really mm-hmm. are, are chaplains in general. And, you know, and those are also people who are very used to just sitting with people undergoing really intense, distressing episodes in their lives and not intervening or doing anything. So I, I definitely don't think that that at least MDs are are the people who who are at least naturally best suited, but in terms of like power position in society, they're probably, you know, they're certainly well positioned to claim that they are and claim that they have expertise. And, and, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's probably going to be one step in this process, but I, I think the ideal scenario for, you know, the next few decades would be one where people can go get, you know, really sort of like, you know, low risk, high quality, you know, highly professional psychedelic assisted therapy. But I, I do like the idea of having other parallel options for people um, where people can go get kind of, you know, a more simplified guided session or where people, you know, can consume psilocybin without, you know, concern for for prosecution from law enforcement. And I think it's possible to have have multiple worlds. And that's that's the way I'd like to see it. Um, and hopefully that's the way it will be. Well, to me, it begs an interesting question. And I think there's two different, there's two flip sides of the question. Um, you know, one is like a practical, just, hey, you know, in the systems we have, you know, but the other one is more of a theoretical. And the question is, is sort of like, well, is psychological suffering even a medical problem at all? Like, is, mm. is, like, is, it, a me- is it a medical issue? Right. And practically speaking, of course, like, well, that, those are the systems we had that we built it to be such. And those are the systems we have to respond to it. But is it? And I'm, I know I'm asking, I'm kind of putting you on the spot as a, a medical doctor here. So, but curious your thoughts on that question. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that's, I mean, that we could talk about that for, 
for hours, for days, and years and years and years. Um, I I think in I, I think psychiatry would be better suited. Um, how should I say this in a, a sort of succinct way? I we live in an era where where everything has to be sort of ordered and categorized in ways that are felt to be equivalent to each other, if that makes sense. There was a, there was a time when, despite the fact that psychiatry was part of the medical profession, that it wasn't simply that every single medical subspecialty was sort of an exact equivalent of every single other medical subspecialty, except you know having a differing topic of focus. And really since the 1970s, Psychiatry has, you know, essentially been turned into gastroenterology for the mind, if you will. And I think the organization of kind of how we define medicine overall probably is 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 way too inflexible and way too rigid. And psychiatry, despite the fact that I think it is useful to have people trained in medical school, um, it it could stand to be a little bit further apart from medicine than it is. And it kind of, that gets into the kind of this deterministic way that we understand diagnoses as if like, you know, having MDD, major depressive disorder is the same thing as having Crohn's disease. And, you know, in some ways that can be a useful way of looking at it, but in some ways it really is not. And it really is not relevant at all. In terms of like our mental health diagnoses, medical conditions, I, I don't I don't know that there is or is not an answer to that. You know, there becomes this this concept of reification, which is the sort of, you know, you, you can sort of turn an abstract concept into a, a, a reality. And I think that's very relevant for for our contemporary society, where if you sort of think that something works the way a medical condition does, then that sort of creates its own reality. And so that is kind of the accepted reality, which makes it a reality regardless of what my opinion on that is or not. So I think we have to sort of, it doesn't mean we have to accept it wholeheartedly, um, but kind of whether or not society sort of approaches something from a given reality or not does kind of determine how real something is to someone. That sounds like gibberish, but hopefully that's clear. Well, it gets tricky. Did you, have you read, have either of you read the, um... Um, the, I think it, I think her name's Anne Harrington, the Mind Fixers. No. Mm -mm. Oh boy, it's a really neat book. She's a historian, um, but it's uh, you know kind of a history of, of of psychiatry, really specifically focused on that time you're talking about, from like the late seventies, eighties up to the present. You know, and how psychiatry changed in just the way you're describing, and 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 um, I mean, these are my words, but in some way, kind of like suffering from sort of like. Um, yeah, hard science envy, you know, physics envy or something like that. And, you know, it's going to like, it's going to make itself about the brain. It's, it's, a, it's a brain problem. And we are, you know, doctors like every other doctor. And we're talking about a biological substrate. And that's what we're doing. You know, and, you know, of course, that co coincided with the sort of Medicaid, you know, everything and like psychiatrists being decreasingly to, you know, not at all trained in psychotherapy. You know, like, you know, it just sort of corresponds with that. It's a really neat book. Yeah, um, I recommend it. It's 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 a it's a nice history, and she's a historian too. So she she, she takes a cool uh, approach to how she um, researches and lays the book out. There's an author um, or 
not an author, is a psychiatrist. He actually just retired, um, Joseph Parnas in Denmark. So he's worked at the, the National Hospital there and also the Center for Subjectivity Research, which is this amazing institution in Copenhagen um, that sort of combines psychiatry and philosophy and they do a lot of phenomenological research. And he, he, he worked a lot over the last 40 years with Lewis Sass, who's the head of uh, psychology at Rutgers University. And they both have written, you know, you can sort of pick a paper and get a sense of, of where they're at. But they speak a lot about kind of what happened with diagnosis in the early 1970s with the, the third version of the DSM. And, mm. you know, I think it was born out of, out of the fact really originally that they did a survey of people diagnosed with schizophrenia in the UK versus the United States. And the numbers were so just outrageously discrepant that they realized that, that the diagnosis at that time just had no kind of basis to them whatsoever. And really sort of attempted to kind of standardize and, and codify what, what psychiatric diagnoses were going to be. But of course, mm -hmm. you know, any decision that's supported by the system, like we were talking about earlier, you know, ends up sort of having certain consequences. So that happened to coincide with a period of great convenience for the pharmaceutical companies because standardizing diagnoses, standardized targets, and then sort of led to the kind of the psychopharmacology revolution, sort of an unattended byproduct. The diagnostic validity ended up being problematic and it's a, it's a lot to get into, but you know, I would definitely check out some of his papers. It gets into sort of alternative visions for a still very medicalized psychiatry, um, but one that is far more sensitive to the subjective experience of the patient and far less encumbered by kind of the rigidity of the, the DSM concepts and a really elegant arguments that they make. Hmm. So it sounds like something along the lines of what you're saying would be like, it can still, you know, like, it can still be medical. Like we don't have to completely ditch the entire idea of using uh, you know, a medical system for treatment, but that that is, uh, it ne we need to really change how we understand what that type of medicine is. I think we need to push back on. I mean, I mean, I think number the the, the biggest issue in in psychiatry as well as medicine is just it's money. It's the influence of money. Money determines you know what gets researched, how it gets researched, how it gets published, and it completely distorts diagnostic tests and treatments. I mean, people in general are getting way too many treatments and they're getting way too many diagnostic tests in this country. There's, there's no argument to that whatsoever. It's been you know, very clearly reported. Um, so I, I, I think that and money leads to a very reductionistic way of thinking. And so from a more sort of philosophical intellectual standpoint, we really need to push back on reductionistic ways of understanding. So things like, you know, you have depression, you need to take this medication, you know, depression equals this. We see it in psychedelics where, you know, people are running around, you know, these incredibly, you know, so Robin Carr Harris commented on someone who, who just posted, oh, psychedelics, they turn off the default mode network. And you know, he wrote, nobody has ever shown that psychedelics turn off the default mode network, <laughs> if that's even possible to do. So, you know, we live in a, in a, culture where things just get so simplified and so mm -hmm. reduced 
And I think that's the kind of thinking that we need to to push back against, including in psychedelics, because that's really not yeah. the way psychedelics are going to work. Right. I think, I mean, at a certain point, yeah, me- medical knowledge is helpful. I mean, you know, when I see people, um, you know, particularly young people with, you know, sort of like a first episode of something or something that just doesn't quite fit. I mean, you do need the medical knowledge. I mean, sometimes people, you know, this doesn't look quite like depression and, you know, you check their thyroid and it's off the charts or, you know, you realize that they're an alcoholic and they're malnourished and this is really a vitamin deficiency. Um, you know, so I, I do think the medical knowledge helps for that. And I think, you know, at a certain point, the sort of medical way of looking at things can be helpful. There's a role for it, just like there's a role for, you know, randomized control trials. It's just the hegemony of that way of thinking where, you know, the sort of medical way of looking at something takes priority over everything else. You know, you've seen me on Twitter posting about, I'm excited about psychedelics, but we act as if there's not like good psychotherapies out there already. It's just patients can't get to them. Um, so I think it's more a question of sort of, of, of hegemony of, of certain approaches at the expense of others. That's the problem. Right. I mean, Eduardo Schenberg um, gives a great talk on epistemic injustice in, in the world of psychedelics and psychedelic research talks about how, you know, a randomized control trial done with 20 patients using freeze-dried standardized ayahuasca that was thought out and given uh, in a hospital unit in Sao Paulo ends up being, you know, far more significant in terms of research results with 20 participants in the study, as opposed to the indigenous knowledge of the use of psychedelics of ayahuasca, you know, over thousands of years with, you know, millions of people. But because it wasn't done in a randomized control trial, you know, that information is epistemically completely worthless because of the way we rank different forms of knowledge mm-hmm. in our culture. So that's that's kind of the, what, what we're dealing with here. Yeah, that's a really good point about um, the randomized control trials. I mean, there's a real absurdity at play when you're trying we're trying to do like double blind randomized control trials and say and being like, well, this is how we're going to determine whether psychedelics are are helpful or not by a, and that's what we have to do it because you know this is our tool so we have to use this tool um but you're privileging this the tool over actually understanding the world <laughs> it's like yes it's, right you're well you're giving the results of the tool and saying that this is the equivalent to reality this is reality it's like no no, no this is not this is like a piece of reality this is a tool to understanding what reality one way or it's a tool of understanding a certain aspect of reality but the results of a rct are not the same thing as reality. They never will be. And that's okay. Like they shouldn't be. Yeah, but it goes right like what you said, you're privileging, you know, certain ways of knowing, you know, and that way of knowing is like at mm-hmm. the top of the pack when, you know, I think in regards to um psychedelics for sure and maybe human suffering generally, it mightn't I don't think it's probably I don't think it's probably in the top 10 useful tools to be honest. That's just my opinion, but I just, you know, it has a place, but it, it you have to cut so much out, right? You're, you're viewing through such a, t- you know, t- such a tiny, small focused lens right. that, that what it leaves out is more significant than what it tells you. 
you know, and I think that's just emblematic again of, of sort of cultural, just cultural patterns of thinking where, you know, another thing that's often sort of critiqued in psychedelic studies is, you know, the, the degree of kind of, you know, how much expectancy influences the results and how psychedelics make people like very sensitive to expectancy. And you know, that's kind of mirrors a, a broader, deeper crit criticism or kind of hatred we have in our culture towards the placebo response, where we sort of talk about the placebo response as if it's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody enrolls in a study of a new antidepressant, they think they're gonna get an antidepressant that's gonna make them better and they get the placebo, but they still get better. And we, we sort of deep inside under, underneath all these narratives, there's this attitude that that's a bad thing. That we, and I don't understand what is so bad about that, that we wanna strip human experience to being something that is so one-sided where it's simply like a chemical response to an antidepressant. But the reality is that human experience is always dependent on context. Right. Another example that sort of try to tie all this together here, but there was a quote unquote study, I think it was done in the Netherlands like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, where they went to some luxury market of really expensive goods and they went around serving people what they said were like these organic fried chicken tenders. And they actually were chicken, chicken McNuggets from McDonald's. And everybody thought they were like the best chicken nuggets that they'd ever had. Right. And, you know, this is again, is sort of, this was sort of, the, the story was reported in a manner sort of like, oh, all these like, you know, wealthy hypocrites who like, you know, thought they were eating good stuff, but they were just eating crap. But what we think about our experience shapes our experience. And that's why, you know, that's why we do go to nice restaurants. And that's why we do, you know, why we enjoy things for the whole context. We don't put all of our meals into a blender and drink it out of a straw. The context does matter. And that's a great thing. Like that's what it is to be human, to sort of take the whole picture and be influenced by everything, including what we think about what we're experiencing. So I don't see what's so wrong about you know, the placebo response. And I don't see what's so wrong about the fact that psychedelics you know, might actually induce a sort of expectancy bias. Like who cares? Like that's a good thing. If something reliably evokes the placebo effect, is it really a placebo? Right. Well, that's that's a good question. Um, I, I I don't know. I mean, there's 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 a lot of great. I'm, I'm not super well versed in like the the research on on placebo, but there is a lot of interesting stuff. I think we need more research on chicken nuggets. That's definitely <laughs> <laughs> a huge need. You know, I have this running joke with a friend of mine where we when we talk about preparing clients for psychedelics. Mm -hmm. The joke is sort of like, and and all that stuff actually turns out to be really helpful in everyday life too, like being open to whatever happens and not getting too attached right. to the outcome. And that and the, and the idea that you're you're naming here, this idea that like our our mindset, our our expectation, our intention will influence our experience, whether that's a vacation or whether that's a root canal or whether that's a psychedelic experience. And I think part of what you know when I think about psychedelics is it, it's so salient how your your mindset can can really you know impact the three-dimensional sensory embodied experience that you see that more clearly than you might in ordinary life when you may not actually be able to have the awareness to link those two together 
Uh, I, I'm, I'm one thing I'm also curious, Franklin, is you're, you're, um, you know, you're, you're involved with the center or the director, you said the center for the neuroscience of psychedelics, you know, one there, there's sort of this debate of, um, I've read papers on both sides. Um, will psychedelics help us understand some of the fundamental questions about the brain, like how consciousness works, things like that. Um, some, you know, in the early sixties, the idea was psychedelics were kind of like the microscope for, you know, biology or the telescope for astronomy. And I'm just curious, like, like, where, where do you see that going? Are psychedelics going to be helpful in understanding just how the brain works that might have other applications to other types of medicine or other disciplines like philosophy? Definitely for philosophy, no question. Um, and definitely for psychology. And I think definitely for neuroscience as well. Um, you know, I, I think it, it's, it's funny with the, with the neuroscience piece and, and residency and, and the fellowship, I was far more interested in that angle than I am now, but I do think, you know, in terms of research into the nature of consciousness and into the, the mechanism of, you know, consciousness, awareness, and things like depression and psychosis and mania and uh, you know all sorts of stuff i think psychedelics will definitely have will definitely bear a lot of fruit i'm 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 just less interested in the in the the brain aspects than i am in kind of more the psychology and the philosophy things but i mean yeah i i think there's who is it stan groff was the one who said what yeah. you're saying right mm -hmm. sort of the psychedelics will be for the mind, what the telescope was for, for the cosmos. And I think that's true. And there's, there's medical things that we might find from psychedelics too, right? I mean, there's like the, the dimethoxyamphetamines like DOI that, um, you know, have really potent immune modulating properties. And so, you know, what research is going to come out of that? Now, I like that you said that, you know, I, I, I sometimes say like, you know, if you are interested in like um, human experience, you know, in the mind and consciousness and things like that, you like, you don't have to care at all about the brain. Like you don't have to, if you want to, that's cool. Like you, like you talked about, you can, there's different ways of knowing <laughs> yeah. and there's, there, you know, and, and that's fine. It's totally, but cool. you don't have to care about any of that stuff. Like you really <laughs> don't. And if it doesn't make you less of a curious and interested person or less of a, you know, or that you're pursuing something, you know, less truthful or somehow minor. Uh, you just, you don't have to care about the brain. It's okay. You don't. That's that. That's that hegemony of of knowledge. Yes. And there is. There's often sort of like I. I still feel like you know. I'm like forgetting. I'm like, oh man, I forget like which network does this. You know, this resident's asking me about this like nucleus in the brain, and I used to like have like you know the whole little like clinical pearl like ready to go, and I've kind of like forgotten. I'm like, oh my god, like is my knowledge inferior? But you don't have to care. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you can feel that way, though, it's like, yeah, and I think there's a, a point which you're like, oh, yeah, you got to know all the, the neurotransmitters by name and this and that, like, you feel like you're going to solve the puzzle and figure everything out if you know, like, the physical pieces and how they all fit together. And um, I mean, you're not, they have, you're not going to, we're, we're nobody, nobody is ever going to solve the puzzle. I think, no, 
I, I think that's an important thing. And I think a lot, of, a lot of people don't really think about this question, but the puzzle will not ever be solved. I mean, we're, we're nowhere near solving the puzzle. I don't think we're ever going to solve the puzzle altogether. That might be some of what the openness right now to because I think coming like especially the 90s and the 2000s like we're gonna solve the puzzle you know the decade of the brain I think yeah. wasn't that the 90s like we're gonna solve yeah. it we're gonna figure this out and yep. I think in the last 10 years it's been like no fucking way <laughs> yeah we're nowhere we're not even we're nowhere near close yeah like it, not only are we nowhere near close but in my opinion like it's impossible like it won't happen it's just not a thing that we're going to figure out. Yeah, I mean, with consciousness, there's an irreducible, the, an irreducible mystery that is involved in that. It's the hard problem of consciousness, mm -hmm. you know, David Chalmers. That you know, we can we can understand the mechanism of consciousness. We, we can study it for millions of years, but how can we actually articulate a mechanism for how we have an experience of the what it is like to be conscious? Mm -hmm. You know, the 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 what it is like to see blue. That's not the same thing as the mechanism of like how your brain processes the color blue, you know, the photospectral, all that crap. Like that's just completely separate from that, what it is actually like to see blue. And that's where I don't see a way to actually getting any closer to that. No, I think and I'm, I'm really glad that conversation kind of made its way here because I think in a lot of ways, that's the mystery that you kind of encounter in a psychedelic experience you know mm -hmm. and, and and it's a, a a mystery and it's a beautiful very liberating thing to you know to to tie in like you don't have to care about the brain you don't have to you know you don't have to figure everything out for reality to be meaningful and in fact you know being a human is it's its own and your life as a human is its own mystery to be lived and it's not a math problem yes absolutely right it's the the, the 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 key to your riddle is you and your experience mm -hmm. i mean if there is a key it's not a key but but that that is the way to kind of move in that direction it's not going to be found you know it's not a commodity that procter and gamble is going to sell you no no, and no I think you know. Thing. Again, that gets in. You know, when you say that it's not a math problem to be solved, I think somewhere in the message of we're going to solve, you know, the brain. Like, who would want to live in a world where we sort of had that answer anyway? It's terrible. It takes away the mystery of life. I always think of. Did you read um, when you were younger um, the Madeline Olingo, the Wrinkle in Time? Man, I definitely read that, or maybe it was read to me when I was really young, but I, I don't remember anything about it. Well, the the villain, quote, villain in that is sort of like this um, nebulous sort of force out there in the universe, you know, it. Um, and it's just this homogenizing force. It's it, it actually turns out to be a brain in a jar that is, you know, just controlling and homogenizing everything. And it's just exact, to me, it's exactly this. It's like, okay, we figured everything out. We know how to control everything. We know how to make your experience what it's supposed to be. And we re we've removed the, the, the mystery from life and it is all one thing. If you just, you know, and, um, 
And I think that's the end point. I think that is actually, that's why I think it's a really great science, you know, science fiction book because I think it really points out like, hey, this is the end point. If you want to look at the world this way, the end point is just all one controlling centralized force. That's the end point. Or or you can keep life a little messy and creative and uh, unpredictable and mysterious. It's making me think if we're trading... uh dramatic portrayals of this stuff of uh one of my favorite movies of all time is the adventures of baron munchausen the terry gilliam film oh it's been so long since i've seen that it's such a it's such a beautiful movie because it's 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 an anti-rationalism movie you know this this guy the baron is in a world you know sort of like the enlightenment period in europe or like everything is science and reason and the baron keeps doing all this stuff and he, you know and they're like you're you know you're full of crap like obviously you're lying this is impossible you can't do that and he's like what do you mean like like what are physics what are the laws of physics like it doesn't matter he sort of defies reality you know right up to the end of the movie and that's kind of the message it's a really it's a, it's a great movie for both kids and adults yeah that's that's one i love i I remember loving it but kind of like you said you kind of remember sometime back there uh with a wrinkle in time i kind of have that that makes me want to revisit that for sure because I remember, I really liked it, but it's so long I don't recall much. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And I love the space this opens up too. When you know you can be uh, inquisitive, you can be rational, you can use your mind as a human, but then also hold it without that sort of rigid quality of you know what I'm articulating here is is uh, is the eternal truth is 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 the is the word um you know so there's like this neat space between um being you know strictly like well you know knowledge doesn't matter at all um on the one hand or you know so rigidly defined for everything on the other that it's like well we have these minds and they're fun to play with but you also have to be able to hold this with some mystery and some lightness and some whatever it's probable you know i'm trying to articulate this well but it's probably wrong and that's okay (laughs) no i mean i I think i think there's a balance right i think ultimately we all live in the material world i have a friend who talks about uh you know consciousness sometimes needs to be in an expansive state and sometimes it needs to be in a contracting state and that's kind of how you know, we need to be living our lives. I mean, we need, you know, sometimes people do need to be in a, in a greatly expanded state. And sometimes, you know, we just need to come back to reality and, you know, focus on the car mechanics and it's okay to do both. Just considering time, I think it's probably a good time to, to wind down. You know, is there anything, you know, that you, that um, it's just on the tip of your tongue or something we didn't ask about or anything, anything else you were uh, wanting to share? Man, I, there's not, but it'll probably occur to me the moment we get off the call. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, being with us today, Franklin. Yeah, it was really great to talk to you and hear about your work and hear a perspective from someone in, in the trenches in, in psychiatry. And I really appreciated sharing about your experience working in the inpatient in unit. I'm uh, not the inpatient, the emergency. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's really valuable. So, yeah, thanks for being with us. Yeah, it was awesome. Thanks, you guys. I had a great time. 
Thanks again for listening to another episode of Altered States of Context. If you haven't already, please sign up for our newsletter by going to alteredstatesofcontext.com. You'll also find information there about where to find us on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Your listening means a lot to us, and we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great trip.